Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, you are one tough cookie. (laughs) Of all seriousness, (laughs) It is so good to see all of you here with us and um, braving the weather to come and be a part of things. Uh, Welcome to those of you on Facebook Live who were not able to get here. We salute you as well. Um, If you've been joining uh, with us, you know that we have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark together every week, just kind of looking at the next text and following Jesus. So far, we've been just in the area of Galilee, and last week we completed chapter 1 of Mark. And up to this point in the story... Jesus has become like a local superhero in this area of Galilee, in these towns that are all around the, the, the Sea of Galilee there. It's almost like having Bono in your hometown or something. He's like this celebrity. Everywhere he goes, crowds of people are, are showing up. Everyone is pressing in. They want to hear Jesus. They want to see who he is and hear what he has to say. But up until this point of the story, Jesus has faced basically no resistance, no pushback. No one has challenged him or pushed back on him in any way, shape, or form. And so now, as we enter into Mark chapter 2, things start to shift and change a little bit. And what we know is, because we grew up in the era of Marvel, uh, we know that every hero needs a villain. That's exactly right. And so here, in the beginning of Mark chapter 2, enter the villains of the story, if there is a villain in the story, the way Mark tells it. And it's the religious authorities of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who were right there in that area of Galilee, begin for the first time to challenge him and resist and push back. Now, what you have to understand is, at this time, the religious system of that day had been handed down from Moses, the law, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. It had all been commanded to God's people to follow. But the thing was, all of it, the entire religious system, it all pointed to a Messiah who would one day come and who would fulfill it. That's what the Jewish people believed. They believed that everything, the the entire religious system was pointing toward a Messiah who would one day come and who would one day fulfill it all. But when Jesus comes in the area of Galilee, they're not buying it. They don't see him And they don't think he is really who he claims to be. And honestly, Jesus comes and in trying to fulfill the religious system, he begins to disrupt it. He begins to disrupt what the religious authorities knew, the system that they were comfortable with and that they had a sense of authority and power in. And so what happens, Mark chapter 2 introduces us to these five confrontation stories. And basically these confrontation stories are moments where Jesus butts heads with the Pharisees, with the teachers of the law, the religious authorities in the area of Galilee there. And he begins to to challenge them and they begin to challenge him. And these five confrontation stories are there. Mark is trying to get us to see that Jesus has an authority that goes beyond the authority of the religious institution. His, His authority goes beyond the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And This is a moment that we begin to just see Jesus make claims about who he really is. Now, we don't think these five confrontation stories necessarily may have happened right one after another. Mark arranges them in the Greek word, it's a chiastic structure. 
And so he puts these stories together to basically show us around this time in Jesus' life, around this time in Jesus' ministry, this is when the confrontation started to happen. This is when he began to confront, and Mark is showing us who Jesus is. And so I want to look at these five confrontation stories together. We're going to spend the most time in the first one because the first one is important. It sets up the other four. Uh, But are you ready? Have you got your boxing gloves on? Ready? Oh, yeah. All right. I love it. All right. Awesome. We are going to go into the conflict. This is Mark 2, starting in verse 1. Begins this way. Well, maybe. All right. It begins this way. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, Capernaum is a town right there on the, on the Sea of Galilee. When he returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon, the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, I want to just take a second. I want you to try to imagine what it must have felt like to be there, to be one of the people in this house pressed in to listen to Jesus. So what we know is in the first century in Capernaum, houses were about 18 feet wide, and they basically were, you know, very short. They had a flat roof that was made basically of mud and thatched together. And in fact, because there was no electricity, it would have been very dark inside the house. And so oftentimes people would spend time on the roof of their house. And so there was probably a ladder leaning right against the house. And so imagine being there. You're in this house. It's hot. It's claustrophobic. People are pressed in, literally touching each other. All you can smell is the smell of sweaty bodies. And it's dark. And you're trying to listen. You're trying hard to listen to what Jesus is saying as he's teaching. And suddenly... There's this interruption, and light breaks through suddenly from the roof. Someone is tearing the roof apart. Dust is like coming down and settling on people's heads. And there are these four guys lowering their paralyzed friend right down in front of Jesus. Now, you got there early to get the best seat. You're trying to listen. You're trying, and, and suddenly these guys rip a hole in the roof, really, to lower their paralyzed friend down in this moment. How are you feeling if you're in this room, are you, feeling, are you annoyed a little bit? Are you uh, maybe questioning, like, what are these guys doing? Why are, why are they cheating? Why are they going in this way? Take a look at how Jesus responds to this interruption in this moment. Seeing their faith, whose faith? The man and his friends. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. My child? Why does Jesus call him that? He's not Jesus' son. And then the statement he makes is, your sins are forgiven. Did did the guy ask for his sins to be forgiven? Did his friends ask for that? Actually, the guy never talks. The paralyzed man doesn't talk in the story. He never speaks. But, But Jesus responds when he's lowered down in front of him. He's paralyzed. My child, he calls him. Your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus do that? These are the exact questions that would have been in the minds of the religious authorities who were there. Take a look. Let's go to the next chunk here. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. 
Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. So this amazing moment that kind of appears like an, an annoying interruption, Jesus turns it, and for Jesus, he forgives the man of his sins, which is a big deal. It's a big thing to do. But he goes a step beyond that, and to prove that he had the authority to actually do something like that, to forgive the man of his sins, he actually heals him and has him stand up and walk. But the healing, the physical healing, was just a sign. It was just a sign to show that Jesus actually had the authority to forgive people's sins. Think about this. Do you realize that every single person that Jesus ever healed in the gospel stories went on to die later? So apparently, Jesus came to do something a little more than just heal people physically of their physical ailments. There's something bigger he wanted to do. There's something more eternal that he had in mind. Now, we tend to look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they are the villains of the story, but we tend to kind of villainize them. And yet, they actually have a lot more in common with us than we dare to think about. If you think about this from their perspective, what Judaism taught is that... uh, for a person to be, for a person's sins to be forgiven, only God could do that. Only God could forgive sins. And the way God would forgive sins is the person would have to go to the temple, appear before a priest, and offer the appropriate sacrifice. To the teachers of the law here, Jesus is not a priest. No one has confessed any sin. No sacrifice has been offered that they know of. So there was no basis to pronounce this man's sins forgiven. So from their perspective, what Jesus is doing here is completely out of line. It's completely going against the law of Moses and what what Moses had proclaimed. But what's happening here for Jesus, if if you're one of Jesus' followers, this is a moment where Jesus is making a bold claim about himself. By forgiving this man's sins, he is making the claim, I am God. He's putting himself equal with God. And really, this is the first time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus publicly makes that claim about himself. And he basically says, hey, it's okay, I can pronounce this guy. He doesn't have to go to the temple. He doesn't have to offer the sack. He doesn't have to do all that because he's with me. And he pronounces him forgiven, and then he heals him to show that he had the authority to do that. So this story sets up this idea that Jesus has this authority to do that for his followers. That's story number one. Story number two, the very next thing you find in Mark's gospel Jesus is going along and he finds a tax collector by the name of Levi. And he invites Levi, he says, why don't you come and follow me? Now, what you have to understand is tax collectors were viewed as the worst sinners in Judea in this period of time. In order to become a tax collector, if you were a Jewish person, you would have to bid out to actually have that right to become a tax collector from the Roman authorities. And if you got that right, then you had the authority then to tax your own brothers and sisters mercilessly. So tax collectors were hated. They were viewed as turncoats. They were viewed as people who were like the worst of sinners. 
And Jesus invites Levi to come be his follower. And, and Levi is so transformed by following Jesus and becoming a follower of Jesus. In fact, Jesus, his, his name is changed in the gospel to Matthew. His name goes from Levi to Matthew. He undergoes this incredible transformation. And then what happens is Levi slash Matthew and a bunch of his sinful friends invite Jesus to come and have a meal with him, a very public meal with these sinners and tax collectors together. And Jesus goes. And that was a no-no for the Pharisees. And the reason that was so bad is because for the Pharisees, you would never associate with the sinners and the tax collectors. Like these people were the problem with our country. These people are the problem with our nation. These people are the reason why God isn't blessing us and overthrowing the Romans and kicking them out. The problem is these people. And so why would you ever associate with them? So they begin to criticize Jesus. In verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus essentially said, look, these people, the ones who don't fit in the religious system, the sinners, the tax collectors, they are the mission. They are the reason I came. And just because they don't fit into the religious system of the day, it's okay because they're with me. They're with me, so they're okay. Are you getting a sense of the claims that Jesus is making here and why it infuriated the religious system of his day? Story number three. The, the, the religious authorities begin to notice that Jesus' disciples do not fast. Now, fasting is something today that we do like whenever there's a special occasion, like we fast and pray whenever we feel like, you know, there's something that we really need to do. But for the religious authorities in Jesus' day, fasting was like a regular discipline. You did that every single week, you would fast. So they began to notice Jesus' disciples are never fasting. And so they begin to question Jesus on this and say, why are your disciples not fasting? And Jesus responds by saying, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Essentially, he's comparing himself to the groom at a wedding feast. He's saying, look, you don't, you don't fast at a wedding celebration. You feast, that's what you do. And he says, essentially, uh, he says, when, when I'm taken away, when the bridegroom is taken away, then my disciples will fast. They'll fast when I'm taken away. In other words, it's okay if they don't fast. He's not saying fasting is bad. Fasting is good. He says, it's okay if they don't fast because they're with me. They're with me. And they don't need to fast while they're with me. Story number four. It's the Sabbath day, the most holy, sacred day that the law proclaimed all kinds of regulations. The disciples violate the Sabbath. They're walking with Jesus through a grain field and they begin to pick the heads off of grain because they're hungry and they're just eating them, popping them in their mouths. They're violating the Sabbath. The Pharisees become furious and they question Jesus and Jesus said to them, Verse 27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Are you getting what Jesus is saying here? He's literally saying, look, the Sabbath is, is good. Fasting is good. It's all good. But you guys have missed the point. The Sabbath points to me. The whole point of the Sabbath, it all points to me. It finds its fulfillment in me. It's okay if these guys violate the Sabbath by eating uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath day because they're with me. And it all points to me. Story number five. It's another Sabbath day. Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum this time. And there's a man with a deformed hand. 
And in front of everyone, Jesus works on the Sabbath because he heals the man. In front of everyone, publicly, he heals the man on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees accuse him of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds by saying, look, is it not lawful for me to do good on the Sabbath instead of evil? Again, remember, the Sabbath, it all points to me. It's okay if I heal this guy. He's, it's fine because he's with me. These five confrontation stories end with one verse. They all wrap up and, and kind of, this is the, the exclamation point that Mark puts at the end of the, these five stories. It says, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. So this is the first point in Mark's gospel where it is uh, suggested that maybe Jesus is gonna get killed. But what's even more amazing about this verse is that it's the Pharisees and it's the supporters of Herod who are plotting together to kill Jesus. Why is that amazing? Because those two groups of people hated each other at this time. The supporters of Herod were like the political system of the day. They supported the Herods who had been put in place by the Roman Empire and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious system hated the supporters of Herod. The supporters of Herod hated the religious system because it threatened their power. Jesus did not fit into either one of those things. He did not fit into the, religion, to the political system of his day. By the way, he doesn't fit into the political system of this day either. And then he also did not fit into the religious system of the day. And so these two people that could not get along and could not agree on anything, they finally find unity over one thing. This Jesus guy is a threat and we need to kill him. That's the one thing they finally find unity on. Now, what does that have to do with us? As we turn this toward ourselves, what does this say to us today? I've been thinking about that for the last couple of weeks, just preparing for this, and, and God's really just began to speak to me. And what I've really began to see in these five stories is the same struggle that all of us have. And it's this idea that the disciples of Jesus and the Pharisees, they represent two ways, two very different, very distinct ways to approach life. Two ways to solve a problem. There are two ways to ask for help, two ways to seek healing, two ways to ask for forgiveness. There are two ways to enter into church. One way is by following the proper protocol, filling out the application in the correct amount of time, making sure it's submitted in the correct order, working the process, qualifying yourself, getting the correct code, that's one way. The other way is to know a guy. It's to know a person on the inside, to know a guy at the top. Have you ever been cut in line? Have you ever experienced that before? You got there in time, you're standing in line, you're waiting, and, the, and somebody just comes and cuts in line ahead of you, and then they get away with it, because they know somebody at the front of the line? You ever experienced this? How do you feel in those moments when that happens? You see, you gotta understand, that's how the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the law felt. They're actually not that different than us. See, they were working the process, they were working the system, they were doing all the things that was required of them to do, and yet, for Jesus' disciples, these guys are just getting in because they know somebody. Jesus keeps saying, it's okay, they're with me, so it's all good. And my authority goes above and beyond all of your authority, so it's all, it's all good. 
When you are on the receiving end of that and somebody cuts in line ahead of you, it's infuriating because you're getting the raw deal. But when you're the person in need and you desperately need help and you know somebody on the inside, oh man, it's the best. You're grateful. I've said to you before that uh, when I was a middle school and high school student, my dad was the manager of a credit union in our small town that we lived in. In fact, my first part-time job was I went and I serviced the pot machines that were in that credit union. And whenever I would go in that credit union where my dad was the boss, where he was the manager, no one would call me Brian. That was not my name. No one referred to me as Brian. I was Norm's son. That's how people talked about me. My dad's name was Norm. They say, oh, you're you're Norm's son, aren't you? Yes, I am. That's right. I am Norm's son. (laughs) Because I was Norm's son, whenever I would walk in that credit union, I could do things that normal customers could not do. I could do things that even the hired employees could not do. I could walk right in the lobby. I could walk past the line of people waiting there, and I could go back behind that little half door, and I could walk past the tellers. I could go back into the hallways of the office, and without filling out a loan application at all, I could go straight back to my dad's office, open his door, and say, hey, Dad, can I have some money for Taco Bell? And he would give it to me. (laughs) I could make it rain, my friends, in that credit union. I could open up the staff refrigerator and I could eat whoever's lunch I wanted to. No one was going to say anything to me because I was Norm's son. (laughs) My boys do that here, by the way. (laughs) I was Norm's son. Here's the point I'm trying to make. A lot of times I think we approach life from this mentality of, man, I've got to fill out the application in the correct order. I've got to make sure I submit it in the correct time. Oh, I've got to follow the correct protocol and all this anxiety around. I mean, I got to get this perfect. I got to make it look presentable. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. If you know Jesus, in other words, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you've come to that point where you've realized that you can't do it on your own, that you can't fix your life, that you can't qualify yourself, that no matter how hard you work, the gap between your sins and God is too great. And you've come to this point where you've realized who Jesus is, that Jesus came as the son of God to offer himself on our behalf as a sin offering to pay the price for our sins. And he rose again to give us new life. And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you've said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my savior. What that means, my friends, is that in everything else that happens in this world, in life, you know a guy. You know a guy. When you're given a diagnosis, you know a guy. When your 16-year-old locks you out of their life and you don't even know where they are, you know a guy. When you find yourself in a situation where all the money has run out and all your friends have deserted you, you know a guy. Whatever the need is, whatever the situation is, you know a guy. Here's what I think. I don't think we understand the power and the authority we have access to as followers of Jesus. I think we've relegated ourselves to sitting in the waiting room, filling out the proper paperwork, hoping we qualify, hoping God sees fit to, to, you know, take on our case. If you know Jesus, 
The roof rips open. They lower this guy down, and Jesus looks at him and says, my child, your sins are forgiven. If you know Jesus, you are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High God. By his authority, not by yours. When you walk into your job, when you walk into your place of employment, you don't walk in as you anymore. You walk in as a son or as a daughter, as a child of the Most High. When you face that issue or that problem in your family, you don't face it alone. You face it as a son, as a daughter of the Most High God. When your family reunion breaks down and you walk away feeling trashed, feeling worthless, you are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High God. That's who you are. You know a guy. Do you realize the power? Do you realize the authority that we have in Jesus? See, see to the Pharisees, go ahead to that next slide, Jesus' disciples were cutting in line. That's what was happening in all five of these stories. To them, it's like, look at these guys. They're cutting in line, and they're claiming they can do that because they know a guy. See, when the, when the system is your God and when you worship it, you get really angry when you see other people cutting in line. You get jealous. You get infuriated because you're working, the, you're qualifying yourself, you're working the system. But when you're the one who's in need and you know a guy, man, you're blessed. So you see, the tragedy of these five stories is that for the Pharisees, for the teachers of the law, they could have known a guy too. They could have become disciples of Jesus too. They could have, but they loved the system and there was no way, there's no way I'm gonna look weak. There's no way I'm gonna look helpless. There's no way I'm going to put myself in that pitiful position and look like those people. So I'm just gonna sit here. I'm gonna work the system. I'm gonna fill out the paperwork. I'm gonna submit it in the proper order and I'm gonna be deserving. And that's not how Jesus operates. That's not what he wants to do in our lives. That's not what he came to do. He came so that we could become what we could never become on our own, sons and daughters of the Most High God. He keeps saying, it's okay, they're with me. It's okay, they're, they're with me. They don't have to have this all figured out. And all per It's okay, they're with me. When I was 16 years old, I went on the first ever missions trip that I ever went on. It was with a group of students from the youth group where we attended church. And at 16, I'd only been a Christian for a few short years. Our family actually had kind of come to Christ about the same time and started attending church really faithfully. And so this missions trip was the first time I had ever served anybody that I can remember. It was the first time I had ever done anything with a group of people to serve um, others. And so what we did is we, we traveled to South Dakota to a Native American reservation there, and we served. It was a missions partner with our church at the time. And we did several different activities. One evening, I remember, we went to a homeless shelter that was there as part of the ministry. And we served, it was like a soup kitchen, and we served the homeless people the food. So if you can imagine a bunch of us students, 16 years old, about that age or whatever, and we're in this this soup kitchen for this homeless shelter, and we've got like the hairnet on, you know, all of us have the hairnets and like the plastic gloves, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we're, we're, we're there and we're serving, we're dishing out food and we're serving the meal. And there's this long line of homeless people who are coming through. And so as we're dishing everything out on the plate, I uh, remember we had this big silver pot of corn. And, and so we had this big spoon and we're dishing out the corn and we're dishing it out. And eventually it gets down to where it's just like the water at the bottom of the, 
the big silver pot. You know what I'm talking about? This just watery stuff. And it started to happen where every time we would dip the spoon into the water, it was harder and harder to draw out more corn. And the line is longer and longer. It's still all the way out the door. And we're at the very bottom here of this silver pot of, of watery corn at the bottom. And so I remember uh, one of us turned to our youth pastor and uh, we called him Cujo. That's what we called him. And um, Cujo impacted my life in so many incredible ways spiritually. Uh, and I remember one of us said to Cujo, Cujo, we're about to run out of corn. And look, there's all these homeless people that we're still waiting to feed. And Cujo in that moment could have said anything. Literally, it didn't matter. He could have said, guys, don't worry about it. It's, it's not our problem. We're just here to serve. It's the homeless shelter's problem whether or not they have enough corn. Don't worry. He could have said, you know what, guys, there's, other, there's more food. There's other food. Just who cares if they get corn or not? Just go ahead and serve them what you got. He could have said any of that stuff, and that would have been completely acceptable in that time. Cujo didn't say any of those things. What he said instead was he said, quick. Let's all circle up around this pot. Let's hold hands and let's pray out loud and let's ask God to make this, uh, this corn last and sustain until the very last homeless person comes through the line. Seriously? That's really? Yeah, come on, let's do it. So literally, we circle up around this pot of watery corn and we hold hands with our plastic gloves on and we begin to pray, God, will you make this corn last until the last homeless person comes to the line? I remember like as we're praying, like I feel so stupid. I feel so silly. I remember like looking up like, oh man, people are watching this, you know? And I could, we said amen and we went back and I continued to feel silly and, and ridiculous about it until I realized that every time we were dipping that spoon into that water, we just kept bringing out more and more corn until finally the absolute last person came through the line and miraculously the absolute last little bit of corn got dished out onto their plate. And it was a moment that expanded my horizons because it turns out what we needed was not more corn. What we, need, what we needed was more faith. And the reason that moment was so significant for me was because what nobody else in that group of us knew was that I was in a season of my life where I was struggling with my faith. And what I can look back on now and I can see now at this age is I was sensing a call into full-time ministry. I was sensing God calling me to become a pastor. Now, my dad was a great businessman. He expected me to be a businessman. None of, nobody in my family had been a pastor. So the truth of the matter was, I was looking at myself and I was wondering this whole like year leading up to that, I was wondering like, do I have what it takes? And as I was looking at myself, it was like, man, I don't, I don't have what it takes. I don't fit the profile. I don't fit in. I can't do what these, what I see these pastors and these people doing. I've got all these issues in my life. I've got all these things that are messed up. I could never, I'm not qualified. I could never do that. I could never be that. And what that moment showed me was that while religion always asks the question, how are we gonna get more corn? Anxiety, how are we gonna get more corn? How are we gonna get more corn? Faith asks the question, who do I know? Who do I know? Because I know a guy 
And it doesn't matter how put together I am. It doesn't matter how capable I am. In fact, those things almost become barriers as at a certain point you realize what matters is who he is and what he's done. So here's the question I want to ask you. This is the application of this morning. Where do you need to cut in line? Where do you need to cut in line? Some of you, you're carrying a heavy burden and you're managing secret pain, secret sin, and you're trying, you're working the process, you're working the system, you're trying to qualify yourself. If you know Jesus, where do you need to cut in line? Where do you need to just rip the roof open and just come straight to Jesus? Is there an area of your life where you've prayed about it, you've worried about it, you've freaked out about it, you've stressed about it, you've created your own plans about it, but what you haven't done is you haven't surrendered it to Jesus. You haven't just come to him. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to come and he wants to take that burden. He wants to shoulder the weight of it. He wants to bear the, the weight of it. That's what he wants to do. So I, I thought about how we could respond to this this morning. And, and I'd love to give, I'm not even sure who I'm talking to in this room, but I'm wondering if there's a few of you who know, man, that's me. And I know I need to go straight to Jesus. I need to cut in line and I wanna pray for you. And so here's the, the situation. Um, in a minute, we're gonna all stand in the room together and we're gonna sing as we do a lot of times to close services. But I wonder if some of you need to cut in line. <laughs> I wonder if some of you just need to stand up first. Stand up right now. Maybe you're sitting there and you're worried about, man, I don't want to look weak. I don't want to look unqualified. I don't want to look all that. Yeah, I know. But what, God, what Jesus wants to do in this moment is he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to show you who he is. And the way he shows us who he is best is in the midst of our burdens, in the midst of our struggles, when we allow him to come on with us. So if that's you, I want to invite you just to stand in the room if that's you. Don't do it unless, in a minute, we're all going to stand. I want to invite you to go ahead and stand in the room if that's you. I'd love to pray over you. Cut in line. Stand up. Be bold. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. If you're just at a point in life of just saying, I need to cut in line. I need to ask God to take this. Not about you getting the application perfect. I want you to hear me, every one of you who's standing right now. Jesus sees you. He knows you. You are his son. You are his daughter. Hear him right now call you my child. Your sins are forgiven. It's okay. You're with me. You know a guy. Can we just bow and pray for those who are standing right now in this room? So Lord Jesus, right now we just come before you as your children, because that's who we are in you. Not on our own merit. We don't stand on our own effort, on our own merit, on our own qualifications, but on the qualifications of the one who is perfect and who came and who offered himself in our place. So right now, God, I just pray for each of those who are standing. I don't know what situation they're facing that's bigger than them. I don't know what words have been spoken into their lives or over them. I don't know what it is that they're looking at as they look at their next week. Jesus, right now, I just pray in your name that you would touch them, that you would reveal yourself in the situations that they're facing and that you would carry the burden 
that you would accomplish the work on your own. And that I pray that you would help each one of them to release this, that to you and to not worry about what it looks like, not to worry about what it, what it might appear like to others. I pray that you'd help them to just to walk into the next season of their life knowing I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the Most High. That's who I am. So God, would you do it? Would you do what we can't do in our own power? Would you, would you do what we can't do in our own authority? God, we come boldly to you and we access your power and your authority on our behalf to do immeasurably and greater things than we could ever ask or even imagine or accomplish on our own. And we just ask that you would be praised and glorified when that happens. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Would you stand, the rest of you, would you stand with us?